This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, Kirk versus the Time Tunnel. Welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show where we're putting the humanities back into science fiction. My name is Gep, and I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi. And this week, we are at the second to last episode of Star Trek, the original series. Yes. Some sort of penultimateness here. Uh, the penultimate episode, as everyone insists on calling it. <laughs> It's, it's this one uh, is about uh, it's not tomorrow was yesterday we've already done that one yep this one is called all our yesterdays ah is that include tomorrow then by which they mean two yeah tomorrow mm. will be all our yesterdays after the day after tomorrow oh okay that makes sense which wasn't that good a movie it was fine true it was okay <laughs> ah i have so much issues with the physics there but anyway <laughs> <laughs> It's weather. Weather's basically magic anyway. <laughs> like suddenly everything's a vacuum, but we're just going to say it's cold. All right. Um, okay. <laughs> so all our yesterday is the second to last or penultimate episode. Uh, it was written by Jean Arisette. I had trouble with this name last time. She uh, previously was on for writing... Uh, in truth, no beauty. Previous episode with the uh, with the crazy alien that could break your mind or something like that if you looked at it. Yes, uh, this uh, was a unsolicited story sold under the name "A Handful of Dust," which I think is a much better name than Wal- Walter Smitty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have only got a couple of guest stars this week because it's a pretty slim episode on basically everything. Ian Wolfe has shown up again as Mr. Atos. He was previously the old Roman slave dude in Braden Circuses. Uh, he also shows up as Mr. Atos and Mr. Atos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and just as so, Mr. Atos is a librarian. And if you aren't actually looking at the name, it's spelled Mr. A to Z. Yep. <laughs> Quite clever, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like uh, calling the uh, the, uh, the the bad guy in that one movie uh, Neela, which is like alien bad. <laughs> anyway, no one knows how to write names. Uh, they either sound like they took a normal name and added some extra letters, like the next character, or they do some stupid pun like this. Yep. Or they're just like the jailer. <laughs> now we have Marit. Uh... Hartley as Zarabeth, not Sarabeth, Zarabeth Zer- with a Z, because it's an alien name. Yes, with a big Z there. Mm-hmm. She's been on a bunch of things. Yeah, she was in a lot of things. Uh, she was in several movies, interesting sounding movies, uh, like From Hell to Texas. Neat. So you go, you drive your road trip from Michigan to Texas. Got it. Right? <laughs> Uh, maybe it's just a part of Texas to another part of Texas. I don't know. I've been to Texas. Wait, is Texas where Hellcop takes place? It might be. I think he's... She was anyway. also on many of the other normal litany of shows that all the guest stars in this were on. Twilight Zone, Gunsmoke, Bonanza, etc. Also on something called Earth 2, but not that other one. One of these days I'm going to learn there was actually a show of this era called Etc. And I've been crediting a lot of people for something they weren't in. <laughs> perhaps fairly uh, recently she's been on things as well can you so like fired side side chat with esther i've never heard of before nope <laughs> apparently it was going for a few years and might still be i don't know this is not in my circles um she's also on uh law and order special victims unit oh like everyone <laughs> yes <laughs> like everyone who is an actor at the present <laughs> or for the last 10 years yes <laughs> finally we have kermit murdoch wrap your brain around that name for a second <laughs> i can't do a good kermit voice i'm sorry <laughs> he's playing the prosecutor now now i'm just imagining like a kermit daredevil crossover 
Kermit the Frog here saying he was like previously in sci-fi radio shows, including a like anthology radio drama show called X minus one, which was like, like I listened to an episode on YouTube. It's interesting. Interesting sort of thing. It also mathematical references. I love those. <laughs> they It's a show where they take uh, interesting sci-fi stories of the time and then adapt them to a bad version of them in a 30-minute radio spot. Oh, that sounds less awesome. I listened to one that was based on Orphans of the Sky, which we saw the I have, the World is Hollow and I Have Touched the Sky, which was also based on the same general concept, but the radio mm-hmm. drama version did not do a particularly good job. They turned into some sort of weird religion is the enemy of the people thing. So, a little awkward. They're trying to condense a bunch of things down, and they're like, ah, we're going to go with this aspect. And yeah. Mm-hmm. But still, it's kind of interesting if you're interested in old school radio shows. Hmm, I might have to ask my dad about that one, actually. He was also on a lot of the similar contemporary things. Kung Fu, Mod Squad, The Defenders. He was also in The Andromeda Strain. Oh, that's apt. Yes. <laughs> right, that's all the so, guest stars. May as well jump in. Yeah, there's a random background characters, but not super important. Yeah, there's some people who are playing musketeers and... Yeah. Other random back down people. Another person who's in the jail with the prosecutor. They only have like two lines, so. <laughs> yeah. Don't forget the woman. Yeah, the woman who yells about witches a lot. That was a kind of interesting one. <laughs> <laughs> so the Enterprise has just arrived at a star that's about to go Nova. Then again, this happens a lot. Yeah, they seem to do this a lot. Yeah. Aren't Novaing stars like? fairly rare yeah they're they're pretty uh there's a certain rate to them as far as statistics goes and so you're not going to get one five times a year like it seems to be on star trek (laughs) especially not within like easy travel distance as far as like go across to the galaxy sort of distance they're basically like uh the tornadoes of space Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> so this place is going to blow up one inhabited planet that's a pre-spacefaring society. Uh, but now they're there to check on this planet, and there doesn't seem to be anybody around. Oh, well, that's weird. Uh, maybe they were spacefaring. Maybe. Kirk, Spock, and McCoy beam down to investigate. They wind up in a large building where they detected a power source from orbit. Uh, after a little bit of exploration, they meet Ataz, the librarian, because this is a librarian. He is the librarian. Oh, hello, Mr. Librarian. Um, can you uh, bring me all the books about uh, uh, space travel? Because obviously that's why we're here. Yeah, Kirk asks where all the people went, and Ataz has no idea what he's talking about, basically. And he asks about history, because he's in a library. He has no idea what he's talking about. And he keeps misunderstanding Kirk and saying, like, oh, you're having trouble deciding where to go like the others did. You want to know where people have gone before because there is a lot to choose from. Oh, okay. That's a little confusing, but okay. Uh, so where did they go, Mr. Atos? So Atos walks away a bit, and then Atos walks out of another place. They're doing a Scooby-Doo thing. Yep. <laughs> and goes, oh, hey, how are you? He doesn't seem to remember them at all. Wait a moment. Is this Mr. Atos' evil twin? Yeah, basically. Uh, they basically get introduced to these weird little metal disc things that you put into a slot and it shows landscape videos. Seems to be what this library is oh. made of. Uh, Kirk asks about recent history and Atos tells him that he should go to the reference desk for further information, which Kirk does and finds Atos. Oh, uh, hello again. Uh- how many of you are there, Mr. Atos? He also doesn't remember them, but is very upset because they're late. He claims to be the real one because the others are duplicates. This is so unimportant that it, I'm annoyed that I had to try to describe this scene. Yes. <laughs> it's it's kind of a minor plot point that doesn't really go anywhere interesting. Yeah, they just Scooby-Doo it. It's like, hi, hi, hi. Oh my God, there's five of you. That's all. <laughs> Goes out through through one door, comes out the other. Oh, it's totally a different guy. So Aitaz tells them they don't have a lot of time to choose, but they must before it's too late. He goes over to a large computer that Spock questions is about, but all he'll say is it's the Atavacron. Oh, the crony the, the of the Atavos. Or maybe yep. the Octavo. So basically they show up, Aitaz mm-hmm. is super weird and tells them to choose. But we'll give them no actual information. 
So you're 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 being a really terrible reference librarian, by the way. You're yeah. Just saying do the thing. I don't not going to tell you thing one about the thing. Just do the thing. No. As Buck and McCoy browse the stacks looking at tapes of icy landscapes, while Kirk browses more tapes at the desk that Atos was using, when he hears a woman screaming through an archway and he runs through to help and suddenly disappears. Whoops. Um, I guess it's some sort of matter transporter? Hmm. Yeah, it looks like that, because it goes the thing. Changes color. Spock and McCoy try to follow him and similarly disappear. But, so they all, uh, you know... Find themselves in front of the screaming woman? Well, Spock and McCoy appear in a snowy wasteland, and Kirk finds himself in a 17th century-looking street where a woman seems to be threatened by several musketeers. As you do in the 17th century, you know. Kirk runs up and grabs a sword and chases the men off. He tries to take the woman back to the library, but finds there is no archway or door. Hmm. Well, um, I guess this was a one-way trip to wherever you are now. Also, they don't seem to have the sort of advanced uh, teleporty t- sort of technology as you just left, so you might be stuck here forever, Kirk. Congrats. And no one knows what he's talking about when he says, come on, let's go back to the library, it's safe there. Just like, what? <laughs> what library? In the snowstorm, Spock discovers that their phasers don't work, so they can't warm themselves. And similarly, there is no door or anywhere they could have possibly come from, just a large blank cliff. Well, that's awkward. Um, I guess we're going to freeze to death, Spock. Uh... Got any cards? <laughs> they begin yelling for Kirk. Kirk hears them through the wall. They begin to follow each other's voices, explaining the situation. But before long, the men that Kirk scared off return with cops. Oh, oh no, the, the, the big bad musketeers had to go get help. They also hear Spock and McCoy through the wall, uh, leading them to believe that Kirk is a witch who is communicating with the spirit world that is apparently on the other side of this random wall, and they drag him off to jail. Hmm. No. It's not the first time Kirk's been uh, taken to jail. Probably won't be the last. This leaves McCoy and Spock out in an ice age. Well, um, there doesn't seem to be any vegetation here or anywhere warm. So I guess they're just going to have to die there. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's nice knowing you two. McCoy classes from exposure. He begs Spock to leave him behind, but he won't. I don't, I don't actually see why he should, because there's nowhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe Spock's like... Hmm. Well, I should probably bring him with me in case I get hungry. They both sit in the snow as a figure in a full coat suddenly appears behind them. Oh, this is a, this coat is fabulous. Wait a moment. Is this the, fa- the fashionable part of the Ice Age? <laughs> they get taken to a nice warm cave that's apparently heated by hot springs and such. The coat is removed, revealing a scantily clad woman named Zarabeth. I don't know, lady. But you, you don't seem to be well-dressed for, you know icy wasteland living even if you do live in a warm cave yeah she's wearing a giant coat and under the giant coat she's wearing a leather bikini yep (laughs) okay i guess maybe if it's like really hot inside the cave that would kind of make sense but i i not even that doesn't even make sense really she explains she's been imprisoned here by the evil dictator um forcon locon my daughter corrected something and i don't bother don't want to look up this name again because it's very unimportant. Yes. It's just some guy who was a dictator or something like that. Another plot point that has nothing to do with anything. Just a bunch of details to sort of flesh out the world. Yeah, apparently there's some random dude who sends people he wants to disappear to these uninhabited time periods that are super hostile to life. You're going to be stuck there and you might die, so good luck! She wonders if they're also prisoners, but Spock explains that they came here by mistake instead, which is better, I guess. I guess that means that uh, we can go home, right? Mm-hmm. We don't know yet, because we cut back to Kirk, who's in jail, across from the woman he tried to save. A judge comes to talk to him. He starts to believe that Kirk is not a criminal and was just in the wrong place at the wrong time, until Kirk brings up the library, which freaks the judge out, and he starts arguing and calling Kirk a witch as well, and then runs off yelling about witchcraft. Oh my, this... Didn't turn out quite as you uh, thought it would, Mr. Kirk. Well, um, hopefully you have a good defense team here and uh, you know, plenty of witnesses to back you up. Wait a moment. Well, maybe so stop mentioning the, the library. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, obviously these people don't know what's going on. Well, back in the cave, McCoy has recovered from something, from freezing to death, I guess. Yeah, he got better. He chastises Spock for not looking for Kirk before passing out again. I was like, why aren't we looking for... That's why, McCoy. Really? Like, 
<laughs> Maybe because you're half dead, Mr. McCoy. Zarabeth asks about his friend and why they keep talking about him, leading Spock to have a bit of a meltdown because he can't work out the logical equation of whether to stay here and help McCoy or go look for Kirk. It's not hard. You have no idea where Kirk is and McCoy is dying. So, so um, I guess Spock's just kind of losing it, I guess. Mm. He says that each is putting the other in danger. He asks about Zarabeth and the uh, Travacon computer thingy, hoping this will give him the missing information he needs to work out. Her backstory is that she had some friends who tried to kill this Zorkon dude, uh, but failed, and now she's here because she had the wrong friends, I guess. Oh, uh, some sort of guilt by association sort of thing. Yep. That kind of sucks. Spock offers to bring her back with them to the ship, but she reveals that part of the time travel thingy is being altered by that computer doodah, and it matches their cells to the time period that they're sent to, making it impossible for them to return without dying. That seems like magic to me. Yep. I mean, so's the time travely bit, so are we complaining? Yes. <laughs> but but even still, it kind of begs the question, it's like, evolution doesn't quite work like that, but anyway. Just then, McCoy wakes up, demanding that they try to find the portal and go save Kirk. But as Zerveth just explained, Spock reiterates that they are now completely trapped. So, uh, your bodies have been changed. If you go back, you'll just sort of die or something, I guess. In the jail, a guard comes to let out Kirk's friend, then comes to give Kirk dinner, but Kirk grabs him, steals the keys, knocks him out, and is about to leave when the judge returns. Um, well, uh, I guess we could knock him out and mm -hmm. uh, uh, flee, or... Yeah, Kirk grabs him too, demands to be taken back to the library. Judge is upset that Kirk is still not playing along with the time period he's in. So this guy... He tells him as well that if he returns, he will die because they now have to live where they were sent. And Kirk goes, I wasn't prepared for anything. And the judge goes, oh my god, you're going to die if you stay here. We need to get you back. Oh, oh, oh okay then. Um, I guess we got to get you out of here. And uh, uh, yeah, so how do we do that? <laughs> well, they run off to the location of the time portal, which is apparently just there. So I, I guess that's easy. Was kind of going up to the wrong bit of wall previously and... Uh, so you have to go to this wall instead. In the caves, McCoy has recovered enough to creepily flirt with Zarabath and comment on how Spock can't flirt with her right. It's basically the whole conversation. <laughs> it is Spock, so, so what do you expect? She leaves them to talk and McCoy wants to try to find a way to leave. Spock reiterates that they are going to die if they leave and they're stuck here and he just has to deal with it. McCoy accuses him of wanting to stay because of Zarabeth and calls him a pointy-eared Vulcan. And this time was one too many for Spock, who grabs McCoy by the neck and starts yelling at him. About dang time, you know? It was a little bit satisfying. He was like, oh, pointy-eared Vulcan. <laughs> like, I don't like that. You need to stop doing that constantly. Stop it. Stop it now, you asshole. Says it's something you should have done a long time ago. And McCoy goes, a long time ago. Of course. So it's time to think about Vulcan history again. This is like a 10 bazillion BC or something like that, right? So that means the Vulcans are not so logical? Mm-hmm. The judge and Kirk arrive back at the random bit of wall that's apparently super important but isn't marked or blocked or anything in any way. The judge can't take him any farther because he's going to die, so he runs off and Kirk walks back through that part of the wall and appears in the library archway. Well, that was, that was convenient. very easy. Um, yeah. I guess you were just throwing yourself up against the wrong bit of wall earlier. Kirk calls Scotty to see what's going on, tells him that he should beam them up, but wait a bit. But if the star is going to explode, he should leave. Yes. <laughs> so uh, we establish our uh, countdown clock here. So... Atos shows up, says, thank God you came back. I didn't process you before you left. Now I have to go get you again. And Kirk tries to explain the situation, but Atos doesn't understand and says he needs to prepare them to leave. Kirk locks this guy in a side room, turns around, sees Atos, knocks him out, finds a third one who pulls a weapon on him and stuns him. So um, Atos having duplicates just made that fight harder until, you know, he stuns Kirk. Basically. That's it. <laughs> yeah, that was the only purpose to these duplicates. Yes. <laughs> Zarabeth and Spock hang out. She gives him some animal flesh, as they call it. That would be meat. Um, well, yeah. yeah, so it's called meat here. <laughs> also begs the question, where are these animals? <laughs> I mean, it's the Arctic. There's animals around, usually. True, but still, it's not a very inviting sort of thing. It seems like a barren wasteland of the extreme. But anywho. <laughs> he contemplates how it's not too bad living here with the cave and the hot springs, and he can make a greenhouse, and then he starts to kiss her, and as the transcript I was reading puts it, inspires much fan fiction. So, uh, what if Spock stayed around there and, uh, 
well, got busy. Mm -hmm. Kirk wakes up in the library on a trolley that Atos is pushing towards the archway in a comical fashion. Yes. Atos is just trying to shove him in there. <laughs> Kirk rolls off just in time. Atos tries to push him through anyway, but Kirk overpowers him. Because this time he's been prepped, so if he goes through the archway, he can never return. Da -da -da. Ah, yes. Now captured, Atos agrees to help Kirk look for you know, Spock and the others, since they are in some sort of frozen time. They must be in an ice age, and now they have to hurry up because you know the sun's going to explode. Yeah, so we have to save them from the past so that we can successfully avoid destruction of the planet in the present, which is also the future. McCoy comes to confront Spock, claiming that he lied to him, which is something Vulcans can't do. So duh, that's another thing that you did. Spock denies lying because he just went off available information and what Zarebeth told him. And McCoy goes, but I have reason to distrust her because, you see, she's a woman. McCoy, you awful person. <laughs> She is a woman who's trapped here alone and will do anything, even killing me, to keep you here for herself. Well, she's not doing a very good job of killing McCoy. No, not really. She should have done this earlier. Yeah. Spock pins McCoy up against a wall. McCoy baits him with emotions because Spock is feeling emotions now because his ancestors had them. And now they're 5,000 years in the past where bloody yes. wars are raging across his homeworld. Yeah, so uh, because he's been rewritten to be exactly like Vulcans of that time period, he is now as bloodthirsty as they. Spock asks Zarebeth directly if they can leave, and she says she doesn't know. She just knows that she'll die if she leaves. Hmm. Well, sucks to be you. <laughs> McCoy runs out into the ice to find the portal. Spock follows, I guess, but I don't think that was ever specified. Yes. <laughs> Kirk and Ataz are trying all of the ice-themed timelines... And Kirk starts yelling through the archway for Spock and McCoy as they keep trying ones until they hit one that they were viewing in the beginning. And Kirk finds them, basically. They get to yell back and forth through the time portal because that's how that works, I guess. I am kind of amused that they just have this whole collection of uh, different ice time periods or something <laughs> like that. Then I started thinking, it's like, you know, how many video games have ice levels? <laughs> it's like they're just sort of going through all of those yep. one by one. <laughs> <laughs> Kirk uh, explains that the portal is back open and they can follow his voice back through to the library. McCoy's ready to go, but Spock doesn't want to leave Zarebeth there. Uh, but when McCoy tries to leave, it doesn't work. Atos thinks this is because they went through together and they have to leave together. Convenient. Oh, uh, yeah, that's a little weird, but okay. I guess this means we can't leave anyone behind and we have to uh, uh, all or nothing. Zarebeth turns away as Spock joins McCoy and returns. Atos immediately puts in a new disc and jumps through the portal himself. Scotty's yelling at them that they need to beam up right the hell now because the sun is going to explode. But of course, this is the time that McCoy decides to ask Spock how he feels about things. And Spock goes, well, it happened a long time ago and she's dead now. So, oh, I feel... okay, I guess. <laughs> it's great how anyone that I ever cared about is dead. Don't, don't worry, don't worry, Spock. You'll not care about people being dead again. They finally beam back up and warp away as the sun explodes dramatically behind them. Kablamers! So, that was an episode. Yeah, that was definitely an episode. I, I kind of enjoyed it, even if there wasn't a whole lot of meat to it, I guess. It's like, well, it's kind of a, a random adventure, okay. It was a fun <laughs> premise. They dropped so many things. And it didn't have any, like, weird stuff. So, uh, where do you want to start with uh, with this one, then? Well, I just randomly clicked on a link in the Wikipedia that was a book that's supposedly a follow non-canonical follow-up to this, where Spock, like, discovers he has a kid from this situation. Wow, Spock got busy fast. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, this is like, they had, like, three hours on this planet, and, like, two of those hours, McCoy was, like, unconscious. So I guess that's when it happened. <laughs> Oh my god, while studying archaeological records of a destroyed planet, scholars find a picture of an Ice Age cave painting that depicts a Vulcan face. Spock realizes his involvement with Zarebeth resulted in the birth of a child. And so, uh, Spock is perhaps, you know, a progenitor to a lot of the people that existed on that planet. Yep. Oh, then they go to the Guardian of Forever to use it as a time portal. Oh, yeah. Wow, this book does a lot of crossover stuff. Anyway, this is not, not really what we're talking about. <laughs> you should go check out Jesse's channel if you want someone to review the books. Yes. 
so um, ice ages, they're pretty, pretty wild, aren't they? Yeah. You want to talk about science of ice ages? Because I've got some very stretched philosophy stuff, but it's very little and very unrelated. So Hawkeye. So uh, ice ages are what it says on the tin there. Uh, it's a period where the Earth goes through a global cooling cycle and a, a lot of ice forms, glaciers uh, are generated and to cover large sections of the, uh, of the land masses uh, and uh, the general you know, atmospheric and global temperatures uh, decrease for a while. And uh, you know, technically, we are presently inside an ice age in that we have things like ice caps. But that means that global warming is just the natural end of an ice age. Nope. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, without global warming in about uh, like 40 to 50,000 years, uh, we'd get uh, big ice sheets coming south again uh, from, the, from the North Pole and north from the South Pole. And uh, that would be how things pr- progress from that point. Global warming might prevent that, which is a little disconcerting. Because um, then when we leave the ice age, then it's going to be even worse. Uh-oh. But um, but uh, there is, I guess, a whole collection of ideas about why ice ages uh, take place and sort of what causes the, the glaciation periods uh, versus the periods where we're at right now where things are a bit for, uh, warmer, more temperate. Uh, and uh, there's a, you know, there's a whole, I could go on the whole array of climate science and things like that, but I guess the important three things to think about are uh, greenhouse effect, so carbon dioxide uh, levels in the atmosphere, uh, albedo, which is basically how reflective the surface of the earth is. If you have more ice, it makes it more reflective. If it's more reflective, it cools uh, more easily. Uh, so a little bit of ice helps cool a bit. A lot of ice cools a lot, and it can sort of spiral out of control to a certain degree. Uh, and finally, the orbit of the earth itself can uh, re- re- uh, re- result in changes in uh, atmospheric temperatures. Uh, there's, uh, not even sure how to pronounce this, but there's a a funky effect where basically the Earth's uh, eccentricity around the, the sun and its orbit changes so that it's a little more further away from the sun than, uh, than uh, you know, for a large section of the year than it would be normally. And this is just sort of a, a byproduct of, you know, the planets moving around and not being fixed in little guide paths like on all the charts. You know, there's a little bit more dynamics going here. And so the Earth is being, you know, hanging out a little bit further away from the sun, just like slightly further away and suddenly you got ice sheets everywhere it's pretty crazy but we're still not sure which of those it is yes <laughs> well really it's probably a combination of all of those things like one will uh, sort of spark one you know one of the other effects which will then encourage another effect um so you know the so the, i'm gonna try to pronounce this milankovitch cycle might get you uh you know a little a slight reduction in uh, temperatures which you know uh, reduces uh, general uh, uh, plant life, uh, you know, and so there's not enough you know, plants, you know, taking care of the CO two being generated, and so that raises global te- temperatures for a little bit, and then you know, you know the you know, the things shift again, and now the Earth's a little bit further away. I hope I'm saying this correctly, and so there's now more plants, and so they take out a bunch of CO two very quickly, and suddenly the uh, temperature drops rather quickly, and then suddenly you have a few more glaciers. Then you get some glaciers that say, you know, mid-latitudes, like, say, the Himalayas. You have this big, you know, uh, plateau area, and suddenly there's this big reflective surface there, you know, pretty close to the equator that uh, is able to sort of reflect a large amount of sunlight, and that drops down temperatures even further. And then so the, and so, you know, the ice caps start expanding. Those, you know, once again, start a cycle where it re- you know, reflects more sunlight, and you reduce the temperatures further, and the thing just sort of starts spiraling out of control for a little while until the you know, CO2 levels kind of level off and your whole, you hit a new equilibrium. So it's sort of, there's a lot of things that are sort of uncertain there, but this is sort of a conglomeration of ideas that are kind of out there, which could all very easily work together for this. So it's sort of a, we don't know for certain the whole process, but that's sort of kind of the working theories right now. So what you're saying is to solve global warming, we need to paint the equator white. Oh, that is one option. <laughs> uh, but that actually uh, uh, does get to uh, things like geoengineering, uh, uh, which is uh, you know, something we talked about uh, during the Snowpiercer episode, 
where basically you're trying to increase reflectivity of the planet by putting things up in the atmosphere, like cloud layers and things like that are, you know, upper atmosphere, white clouds reflect light just as well as, you know, ice on the surface. So if you want to sort of reduce temperatures, that's also another way. So ice ages. <laughs> so basically every now and then the planet gets really cold and we're not completely sure why. Oh uh, yeah. So it's, there's, as I said, there's a, a number of factors that may be contributing there, um, but there's also sort of cycles within cycles there. As I said, right now we are technically within an ice age because we have things like, you know, ice caps right now we have, you know, and so, you know, the, we are at one extreme of the ice age, but we could very easily go the other direction and, you know, and, you know, have much more extensive ice sheets over large sections of land. Uh, you know, once again, assuming global warming wasn't happening, uh, but there's also smaller cycles, uh, you know, they would like solar cycles that, you know, output a little bit more, uh, you know, energy from the sun for a few years and then, you know, uh, uh, chill out over time. Um, but overall, the sun is going to be a net increaser in uh, energy output. So it will slowly heat up the earth over time. So uh, I guess it's kind of a maybe a good thing to be in an ice age occasionally. So you can chill the planet off. Yeah, it's probably necessary for not overheating and everything on the planet dying like Venus or mm -hmm. Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, to uh, yeah, have to have some regulation in there. Otherwise, yeah, you get, sort of end up on one of the extremes. Though Mars also has the problem of you know no you know strong magnetics, magnetosphere. There we go. Um, but uh, did you were you aware that even if you count all the glaciations of this present uh, uh, ice age over the last uh, several million years, yeah, this is not the first time the Earth has had an ice age. It's possibly snowball Earth, which we're still not mm -hmm. sure about one hundred percent. And there was like a pre-dinosaur ice age and possibly a during-dinosaur ice age. So these are, this is something that seems to happen periodically, uh, or not really periodically, occasionally on Earth. Exact winds if they are is going to be a little more complicated than that. Um, but it is a, something that, you know, as, a, as you said, uh, may have produced a snowball Earth at one point where there's basically ice all the way to the equator. So, yeah, really chilly. Uh, but... Uh, get a little extra CO2 and suddenly it's like, oh, we could start melting the ice finally. And suddenly the ice retreats and you can have a whole ecosystem explode and suddenly you got the Cambrian explosion or something like that, maybe. This is that whole thing that people talk about where during the Mesozoic and whatnot dinosaur eras, Antarctica was actually a rainforest. Yeah, there is. Uh, well, there's a couple of uh, bits going on up there. The uh, Antarctica was also a bit further north um, for one. And uh, two, yeah, the, uh, without the ice sheets and things like that, like anywhere on the Earth, yeah, it kind of means that there's opportunities for you know rainforest to be in places that you might not expect. There's also all the other stuff in there that you were talking about, kind of, where it gets super warm, but then there's an overabundance of oxygen, which means the Earth can't hold atmosphere, but that's also why you could have giant bugs. I remember seeing those uh, pictures of giant uh, bugs in the... Like the the, the the ancient life you know you know life on Earth sort of uh, books back in the library in elementary school. I'm like, I don't think I want to travel back in time there. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to see the hawk-sized dragonflies. I mean, me now would be kind of cool, but back then I'm like, I'm gonna nope on this one. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah, it's it's just kind of interesting to think that the environment that we understand the Earth to have at right now has been very, very different at various different points in time throughout uh, you know, the Earth's uh, long uh, lifetime. And some of them you wouldn't recognize at all. And, you know, from basically a jungle planet to everything is frozen. So <laughs> it's a sort of uh, something to sort of remember. You think about, you know, the, the possibilities of where the Earth could be going in the future. So really, if you think about it, the only two realistic mono-ecosystem planets are jungle or ice. Everything else is not viable. <laughs> well, it's well, it's not viable in life as we know it. But if you get some Horta there, well, maybe you'll be okay. <laughs> Remember those guys? Horta, yes, somewhat. That sounds familiar. Uh, the Devil in the Dark. Oh, yeah. They're the guys that, that, that eat rock. That's right. <laughs> those guys. <laughs> I wonder what their spaceships are like. Also, apparently, a Belgian architect and designer. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's most of what I had about uh, Ice Ages and coolness there unless you want to you got something else i guess we could also talk about like uh how ice ages has affected humanity if you'd like well hey we are an ice age species we evolved in an ice age 
mm-hmm. and then have been living in one ever since. Yeah, the uh, one of the uh, side effects of uh, ice ages, you know, is of course you know a change in sea levels, which uh, you know is you know hypothesized to be one of the contributing means that uh, you know, humanity uh, reached the Americas uh, in ancient uh, days. Uh, it also has this habit of making certain areas kind of uninhabitable for a while, where it's like, well, there's now like two kilometers of um, ice here where there was used to be a, a town. So I guess we can't live here anymore. Uh, and so there's been sort of a bunch of research done uh, sort of about human migration uh, throughout the ancient world uh, and how the Ice Ages has sort of specifically been an influence on that both opening up territories, but also pushing people out of them or, you know, ki- uh, potentially killing them off. Uh, I was uh, reading earlier about uh, some stuff where they're looking at mitochondrial DNA and such that sort of pointed to the suggestion that, uh, you know, you know, amongst the the ancient bodies they found from the ice ages, uh, you know, you know, more recent, the more recent, um, you know, glaciation periods that there is, probably some very specific sort of migrations into areas like Europe that where you got the currents of the uh, North Atlantic shutting down, suddenly Europe gets covered in ice. And so almost everybody there dies. And then the currents start up again, the glaciers retreat and a whole new group of people kind of moves in and sort of overcomes the population that was there previously. Uh, sort of making a very sort of genetically uh, unique new population that is different than who was there before. And so apparently this has you know, happened at least once, maybe several times. That's very interesting. I guess that's most of what I want, had to talk about there. You got anything else? <laughs> the only thing that I have is a little bit of philosophy, but it's an interesting one because this is one of the only shows I've ever seen. This is one of the only things I've ever seen at all where they're using the past as this kind of escape from an apocalypse. Indeed. There was a show I'm struggling to remember the name of from a few years back on Hulu, I think, where they traveled back in time to dinosaur era to escape like modern day global warming and ecological disasters and things. But they went out of their way to say that it was a distinct alternate time period than one of those cross-dimensional things where anything they did in the past wouldn't actually affect the future. The name of this should be something i know uh was that under the dome or i'm thinking something else? no you're thinking of something else <laughs> okay. under the dome was that like stephen king thing oh yeah 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 okay never mind but this episode does an interesting thing that you don't often see with apocalyptic fiction because a lot of stuff that you get in apocalypses is very concerned with how a culture will survive but mm-hmm. less so about any individual people Indeed. But this particular escape that they made, being able to send people back in time to live out their lives, is presupposing that they will have to give up the cult- whatever culture they had in the present when they go back in time to fully integrate with that time period and its culture. That's quite true. You know, you're not going to be able to sort of continue as you were you know, when you're suddenly in you know, that planet's equivalent of ancient Rome. It's like, you're not going to stick out if you do. So what they're basically doing here is one of the weirdly unique things that I've seen in apocalyptic fiction. They're saying the world is going to be destroyed and there's nothing we can do about it. And instead of doing something to preserve our culture, like even in several other sci-fi stories, including like Next Generation, they had like, well, we know everyone's going to die. So let's send out a satellite or something with memories of our people or a record of our culture so someone will remember this says we don't care if anyone remembers we want every individual to be able to live a full and relatively happy life so in some ways it's very different priority yeah you are looking at this weird dichotomy you get between a culture and the individuals within that culture because we often hear people talk about preserving culture It's like a big thing that people like to argue about, about whether we're preserving culture or how we will preserve culture or how a certain culture will survive various disasters or apocalypses or what have you. But by saying that you care more about the culture, you're basically saying you can sacrifice anyone within that culture as long as the culture itself persists. So you uh, get basically the taste of Armageddon situation where... It's like, well, we got to murder lots of people in order to preserve our way of life. And, and everyone's just okay with that. 
This society seems to prioritize life to such an extent that they are willing to entirely dismantle their culture in order to preserve life. Indeed. So I think I like these better guys better. The weird other stuff that they had, the, the weird dictator who's exiling people to the past and other things, doesn't suggest that kind of culture. But that's such a weird, unnecessary plot point that I'm not sure how to work it into anything. Well, I, uh, I was, the way I was sort of thinking about this in the episode is that you know, there was this dictator who kind of took over. And he could have just killed his enemies. But he's like, mm, I'll exile them because that's more humane or whatever. And so maybe there was a certain value of life there, even if he was kind of, well, a, a horrible dictator. <laughs> um, and then that's sort of that, that reign of terror there with sending a bunch of people back in time, whatever, uh, created the technology that was then still around when this, uh, you know, the, the, they decided, oh, yeah, the, we should probably do something about this whole exploding sun thing. <laughs> a culture that values life so much that even the brutal dictators would rather invent time travel than kill someone. Yes. <laughs> Which I guess is kind of a motivation. <laughs> it's like, well, I could be a murderous despot or... I know I'll I'll bend space and time to my will and you know you know basically pull you know all sorts of craziness out of my ass and then there you go now you're time traveling. Well, that's at least somewhat interesting as a take. Yes, <laughs> and they did it with all all without a Tipler cylinder too. Hmm. So there's that. The only other thing that I didn't particularly like with this episode, but something that places do a lot, is treating history as almost a predeterministic path because when Kirk goes back in time he winds up in the 17th century and it's a completely recognizable 17th century with human 17th century costumes and architecture and jobs and beliefs yes and musketeers in fact yes <laughs> and you know it's like oh there's okay people are scared about witchcraft so I guess things have very much once again, been exactly like they've you know happened on Earth, just on a different planet again. Which is not only a little bit weird to say that every planet with human societies would progress exactly the same way, but it also gets into this history as a march of progress idea, which is that you start at a certain you know pre-industrial barbaric time period. And then there's a certain amount of progression that you get in the slow, steady march towards what we have now, which, of course, is the ultimate end of history. And then now we have these, like, future thinker ideas to, like, well, now we're obviously moving towards something greater than where we are now because the march of history is ever forward with progress and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it's a very, very um, Western American-centric view of history uh, actually has some sort of echoes of the kind of uh, dominion doctrine of Christianity, which is that all of life on earth was specifically created and tended to be you know, commanded and used by humanity. It's, it's basically a, a, a school of thought in Christianity that I have a lot of problems with, but they tend to use it to justify all sorts of horribleness. And that's kind of how... We teach history, we look at history, we think about history as history used to be less advanced and then it spent a certain amount of time going through some other stuff and then we had the, you know, the Reformation and the Enlightenment and the post-Enlightenment period and post-modernism and da-da-da-da-da and then we got to now, which is perfect. Um, Kepwin, have you seen the world recently? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's perfect. <laughs> but you have to agree, it's better than when we all lived in huts in the grass. We have archaeological evidence that we took care of people better and there were fewer pandemics because we aren't, weren't all clustered together in cities. Hmm. I mean, as a city dweller, I don't want to come across as like particularly down on cities, but you know, we wouldn't have had the same sort of super spreader thing. It would have killed off like one or two family groups in a migratory way and then disappeared. So it's a certain degree, though, it's very much it was a different way of living. But to say that something is for sure 100% better than the other is kind of absurd. Because, you know, the way that we choose to live our lives works for us. But other people kind of have their own thing going on, you know? And to sort of say that, yeah, and to condemn some others, you know, a, you know, a group of people either in the past or even in the present 
to say that, oh, they're less advanced than us. That's kind of absurd and just as a means to sort of disregard people just by how they live. And that's that's kind of mean. Yeah, it is a very judgy view of history. And it is very also rooted in the general racist philosophy, as we've talked about, um, of expansionism and novel savagery and the idea that more advanced societies are just intrinsically better than less technologically advanced societies, if you can even judge something like that, because who is to say that a car is more technologically advanced than an atlatl? They are both technologies that fulfill a specific purpose, but why do you get to say one is more advanced than the other intrinsically? The, the, the automobile? Yeah, I'd like to see someone just randomly put one together. I mean, it's like without machined parts and things like that. Yeah, use this use this automobile to hunt a bison. I dare you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yes. Society and civilization and all that is a group project to a certain degree. And to sort of try to stratify it in, in various ways is just sort of doing us a disservice. It cuts us out, uh, cuts... Sp- uh, people's ideas and uh, entire cultures out of what we can, you know, make good sh- sort of, you know, you know, uh, you know, enrichment of our, ourselves and uh, you know, both, you know, both ends. Uh, and that's just kind of counterproductive when you think about it. It's like, this is the only way forward and we're going to prevent any thought about anything else by just sort of condemning and say, it's not, it's not the present. It's not the current top the line and the progress is here and if you are anywhere else then you are forbidden or whatever and it's like that's not quite how it works even like advancing of technology is a little bit more haphazard than people like to think about i should go back to watching connections (laughs) Hmm. yeah everything's a bit random even our current views of history even something like we were talking about the ice ages but something like that just randomly influences how things work and even something like evolution that we talk about is like a unending march towards more complexity and superiority and you can have this weird idea of more or less evolved organisms it's the same idea we just put ourselves in this exceptionalistic position and (laughs) i don't think that's a real word but it works for what i'm saying (laughs) The geocentric version of uh, society, history, biology, etc. Yes. <laughs> Hint, we're not the center of the universe, guys. But it's like better, like people like it better when we think of it that way. And it excuses a lot of other things you're doing. Because this idea that a more advanced society even technically exists is intrinsically colonialist. Because you presuppose that anyone who is living in a society that is less advanced than your own must be having a worse life. And therefore, anything you do to bring them into your advanced society is justified because you are simply eliminating human suffering. So you you would not agree that all happiness was invented in 1978 then. <laughs> i might agree that the idea of happiness as we think of it now was invented in 1978 but that's a whole different <laughs> psychological discussion yes <laughs> mostly to sell yeah. you things yeah <laughs> you know and and i guess it's actually a good point though you know our idea of what is you know a good life what is happiness etc does change over time and that's fine you know, if we are content with our lives as they are, then okay, that's good. You know? Yeah. Stop striving so much. It's causing problems. <laughs> if you want to strive, that that's your thing, go ahead. But don't, like, poo-poo other people who aren't so interested. Also, stop trying to be happy all the time. It's not a problem if you're not happy all the time. There's other emotions. They're fine. Being, you know, sad, being angry, being just kind of meh. Yeah, those are all things to happen sometimes, you know? And this is a completely different point. It's a thing I've been talking with someone about recently. The emotions are informational. They're not like a different thing that exists that you have some vote of control over. It's like being hungry. You wouldn't will yourself to stop being hungry. <laughs> you know, a, a state of, it's a feedback of sorts about your sort of mental state. It's like, hmm, I am being affected by this. And yes, it's going to affect my my motivations and my actions, things like that. But it was also informative about how 
I've gotten to this current state of being as well. Yes. But that's a whole other soapbox that I don't feel like jumping on right now. <laughs> but we have so many soapboxes we could hop on. <laughs> you don't get on too many soapboxes. They're not stable. Maybe we could pile them up. We'll, we'll, we'll be on a really big soapbox effectively. Jenga. And then it'll fall over. <laughs> All right. I feel like this episode was very light on substance. Uh, it treats women absolutely absurdly horribly again. There is a somewhat unspoken but very implied idea that a woman being alone is going to turn horrible and manipulative and even be willing to kill in order to keep a man around but since they said specifically she's going to do this because she's a woman there's an implication that a man would handle this situation better and be trustworthy and have just tried to like help them out instead of being manipulative and awful and that argument is crap yep I mean, the very fact that she shows up and is wearing a sexy leather bikini should tell you all you need to know about how much you should listen to their views about women in this series. Indeed. You know, uh, it's not always great in later Star Trek, but does get better overall. I was talking about this with someone, and, like, it's hard to think of even, like, one or two examples from something like Next Generation where they get particularly sexist like this. And don't even and don't even explore it. Like there's some sexist stuff in there, but in oftentimes they're trying to explore something. How well they do varies, but this is just presenting it as rote fact, which is not good. Mm -hmm. I think we have we've wrung this episode dry, because yes, <laughs> it's so. But it's because it's so cold. All, all the moisture's been been, been frozen. <laughs> It's precipitated out of the atmosphere, Gepwin. Oh, no. Yeah, that's why Antarctica is a desert. I blew your mind. Cold <gasps> deserts? Who heard of such a thing? I actually know some people have been to Antarctica. Oh, but anyway. That'd be fun. Actually, me too. Okay, I think that we've really strayed. And now it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show. Hey everybody, welcome back to the game show portion of the show. I hope you're having a good night, or a good morning, good afternoon, or good commute. Uh, we got some prizes to hand out here. They've got various contestants today who've been uh, racking up a big score. Uh, some maybe not so big scores, but still getting prizes all the same. So our first prize is the TV Love Story Prize, which goes to Spock and Zarabeth. We're getting the hots for each other, uh, enough for it to be a plot point, I guess. So what do they win, Gabun? Well, apparently they win a romance novelization, which I just discovered at the beginning of this episode exists, and they have a kid. So I can't think of anything else. That's just weird and creepy, but also interesting. Well, uh, I think I'll, I'll leave it uh, that bit uh, with um, Boom Chicka Wow Wow, <laughs> and we'll move on. So our second prize is the Tragedy of Errors prize, which goes to Mr. Atos. For not recognizing Kirk and company are obviously aliens, especially Spock over there, and thus getting super eager to condemn them to the past without any real explanation. So this guy just kind of doing a thing. He's not. He's, he doesn't know what the hell he's doing. What does he win, Gepwin? Ataz wins a couple of extra brain cells because I'm not sure how many each of those duplicates got, but they seem to have split it up unevenly. Yeah, some of them seem quite friendly. Some of them seem a little rude. And overall, they're not all working on uh, all cylinders, as it were. Our third prize is the Sufficiently Advanced Aliens Prize, which goes to Kirk for seemingly talking to ghosts or something, and thus coming off so some sort of magical, powerful being, and thus is some sort of witch, and that's, that must be burned. Whoops. Um, what does Kirk win, Gepwin? Kirk wins Arthur C. Clarke's Rules of Science Fiction because any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, especially when you're worried about witches. And uh, apparently, alternative not Earth Earth place here is certainly uh, worried about witches. Our final prize today is the uh, Caring Antagonist Prize, which goes to McCoy, who normally antagonizes Spock, but uh, he spotted quickly that something was up with the Vulcan and uh, was trying to get him back to the future. Um, sort of. I guess he's also kind of self-serving. But anyway, what does he win, Gepwin? McCoy wins more racial sensitivity training, which doesn't work very well, according to the data, but at least it's something. Because we didn't, we didn't really get into this whole McCoy thing in the discussion, but the fact that Spock not taking his racist abuse 
is the thing that makes him recognize something's wrong with Spock is really telling. Yeah. It's like, you gotta be like, you gotta take it, man. Otherwise you are, you're just not the Vulcan that I recognize. And the fact Ooh. that they used that as the clue that let him realize what was happening. It's kind of terrible, isn't it? Yeah. Hmm. Well, I, I try to make these things uplifting and, 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 and joyful, and but I always ruin once it. Once again, <laughs> yeah, it's, everything's falling apart again. Oh no. Um, Gapwood, take us away before things get even worse. Oh, thank you to all of our time-trapped people who escaped something, I suppose. Then stop being a sexist, please. Thank you. (laughs) And thank you all for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! So uh, the the mighty colored land is a uh, I think I've told you about this before. Uh, do you remember if I told hmm. you that? I don't. Doesn't sound familiar offhand. All right. It's a it's a uh, first book in a series by Julian May that features a bunch of people that go back in time, uh, like six million years ago, and they uh, they meet some aliens. Ah, oh, so it's ancient aliens. So sort of yes. Also, they're kind of like elves and dwarves and other spirits and things like that. It's kind of weird. But I enjoyed the story. Uh, but it, 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 this episode did kind of remind me of it because, you know, one of the things that, you know, they, you know, one of the reasons one of the people went back in time is like, well, I will have to go to jail otherwise. So I'll just go back in time and be out and be not a problem for you guys. How about that? Huh. Interesting. Like, okay. First book of the saga of the Pleistocene exile. Yes. An interesting read. Um, I, it's been years since I, I read that. Uh, it was like middle school or something like that. Uh, so I no idea if it holds up, but uh, just one of the things that kind of this episode reminded me of. Interesting. Oh, wow. It's a backstory book. <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> there's also books about the future or I guess the present now. Hmm. Anyway. <laughs> so uh, we're, I'm, I'm kind of delaying here because, you know, we got just the one episode left of Star Trek, the original series. And what an episode. <laughs> So I, I've seen parts of this one, but I don't think I've watched the entirety of it. But what I remember wasn't good. I've never seen this one, but it's bad, and everyone knows it's bad. It's possibly the single most sexist episode of the series, which is interesting. They chose that one to end on. Whoops, that sucks. Um, I don't know what else, what else to say about it, really. Um, Turnabout Intruder? Yeah. It's a- <laughs> Certainly is an episode of Star Trek. Turnabout Intruder is the final episode of the third season, and of course the entire series, Star Trek, the original series, or just Star Trek, since we didn't know other stuff was coming at this point. And it is about how women can't run starships. I'm kind of glad Discovery has basically blown that out of the water, you know? Yeah, well, they've done that a couple times. Like, they had that... They, they talk about how they'd never bring this up again. In fact, I think they mentioned that there's some regulation that women can't run ships that they like never bring up ever in any other iteration of this show. Good. <laughs> yeah. I, I mentioned uh, discovery specifically because, you know, it's sort of contemporary, uh, contemporary with uh, uh, the original series by, you know, just a little few years beforehand. So if there is a regulation in place, then that is not in place later, then it should be relevant, but it's not, not there. So good. It's like, we just kind of erased it from history. Don't worry about it. It's wrecked. Yeah, we should play fast and loose with canon on this show. Or any show, really. But well, if, I, if I have a TV show, I want you to play both fast and loose, but also very tight with canon. Why does that sound so sexual? Because that's the, what the show is going to be about. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> okay. I don't, I don't know where to go. I'm not looking forward to this, but this will be our final episode of Star Trek the Original Series next week on Watchers of Tomorrow. Next time on Watchers of Tomorrow, time for some body swapping. You have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbean, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more. And where possible, make sure to rate your experience. 
or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on youtube.com slash Gepwin and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Isix, on youtube.com slash Dr. Isix and Twitter at IsixLP. Music is Waveform and Mori's Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.